Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. You've been seeing all of this talk about Ozempic and Wagovi, and you're probably wishing that you had more information about these medications. You're in luck. Today's episode is a must listen because we are breaking it down for you. Today, I am joined by Dr. Asher Larmy, who goes by Asher who is a weight-inclusive general practitioner and an expert in weight stigma, and we are talking all about GLP-1 agonist. You know them as medications like Ozempic and Wagovi. We talk about this in the episode, but the reason I wanted a podcast on this specific topic is because I now see these medications being offered to clients left and right, and I want you to have informed consent. Informed consent means that you have a full understanding of why you're being offered the medication, the benefits, the risks, other medication options, and you take all of that information and you make a decision that is best for you. We really see informed consent lacking when weight loss is being recommended. What we see is that weight loss is put on a pedestal and risks or long-term research are often diminished or sometimes even dismissed. So um, this episode is just going to give you a different perspective on these medications so that you can really feel empowered to make decisions that are the best fit for you. I also wanted to give you a little bit of clarification about part of our conversation at the end of the episode. We were talking about Wagovi, which is prescribed for weight loss, and a study done about Wagovi called the Step 5 Trial. Um, The Step 5 Trial is a two-year study on Wagovi. We don't have research on Wagovi past that. And what the study concludes, if you were to look up the study online, is that folks on Wagovi experience about a 15% weight loss in total, and that kind of plateaus. You don't lose more weight the longer that you're on the medication. And then it's a pretty well-known fact now that if you stop the medication, you regain all of the weight back. Um, So, but what the study says and what people are advertising is that there is a total of a 15% weight loss on average. And in our conversation, Asher had mentioned that while you're on the medication, there is a potential to regain back all of the weight lost while you're still taking the medication. Um, and Asher and I chatted after the, the recording, and I wanted to put this in here for you too, because I was just asking him, you know, my understanding was that there is a 15% weight loss and it's kind of a plateau. And you had mentioned on the medication, a potential to regain all the weight. Like, can we chat about that? Um, and Asher graciously pointed me to figure two of the step five trial. And I'm going to include that in the show notes for you so you can see this. And I feel like this kind of represents some of the bias in research. You know, everyone has bias. I have bias, you know, in this episode from my own perspective, but we do need to consider bias in research too. And I feel like this is a really good example. Uh, But Asher pointed me to figure two of the step five trial. And this is a graph. It's like a line graph that shows the trend of the percentage of weight loss on Wagovi. So, What you'll see is that in the first year of the study, this graph trends down, participants experience weight loss, and then after the first year, the graph is trending upwards. So in the study, they compare two data points from year one and year two, um, 
And they call this a plateau from the two points that they picked out. But if you look at the graph itself, it's actually still trending upward at the end of two years. And we really don't have any research past that two-year mark. And what Asher was saying is that if you just continue to follow the trend of that chart, you could make an assumption that somebody could potentially regain back all of that weight. Now, that is an assumption. That is anecdotal. We don't have research that shows that. However, we also don't have research that shows that the 15% weight loss is a true plateau and that you don't regain um, more weight than that. So I just wanted to add some clarification because it was really important to me that this episode be evidence-based, that even though we have our own bias, that you are getting the information that you need to make decisions and have informed consent. So just want to add that clarification. Okay. I will leave you to listen to the episode. I I know you're going to find it very useful. And thank you so much for tuning in today. Hi, Asher. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Sam. I'm so excited to be here and to talk. Um, I'm excited to have you. (laughs) This is a very... Uh, much requested topic. So I wanted to bring in an expert to chat about it. (laughs) And we are going to be talking all about weight loss medications today, these GLP ones. But before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, what to say. I always try to keep this really short and I never get there. (laughs) um, I'm a doctor. I, I graduated medical school in 2003. Uh, and I have been a GP, a general practitioner since 2009. I'm passionate about a lot of different t- types, like parts of my of my work. I, I I really enjoy working with people who have complex medical problems, um, people who have like invisible disabilities and things like that. Um, I started off writing a weight loss blog in 2020. Uh, and we're now beginning of 2024 and I went from writing a weight loss blog in 2020 to uh, signing my divorce papers with diet culture at the end of 2020 to learning about intuitive eating at the beginning of 2021, uh, then learning about weight stigma and then realizing that's no good. I need to do something about that and figuring lots of people are doing something about that. So I'll just go join whomever. Um, and found that actually there aren't that many doctors out there talking about weight stigma, which is surprising because it's a really big problem. So I have been, I guess, advocating since then and uh, called myself the fat doctor, which began sort of, I was hoping it'd be ironic because I was planning to get thin. Then I'd be a thin person called the fat doctor and everyone oh, would think wow. it's very tongue in cheek. Turns out the fat doctor was the perfect name because I am both fat and a doctor and I talk about what it's like to be fat and go to the doctor. So that's what I do now. And I, you know, and I, I guess, um, GLP ones came out during this period of time as I went from weight normative care to campaigning against weight stigma. And they, I guess, epitomize everything that's wrong, in my opinion, with the system, the current medical system. So I'm very passionate about them. I've done a lot of digging into them. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be good friends with Reagan Chastain, who I would say is, I mean, her, her understanding of these drugs is, is next level. Um, so I learned a lot from her as well. Um, and here I am. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I also love Reagan. And I think it's really interesting that you've kind of been through this evolution of, you know, focusing on weight loss and kind of making this transition into the opposite. And I think a lot of weight inclusive practitioners go through that same journey because everyone's training is very weight centric, whether you're a dietitian, a doctor, nurse practitioner, PA, whatever, what caused that evolution? Or, you know, what are some things that made you say, like, hmm, maybe focusing on weight loss isn't the best way to practice medicine? I think, I think 
it was quite, by the time I started learning about it, so I started learning about health at every size. I started picking up books and reading and researching. By that point in time, I think it had been 15 years, well, no, longer than that, you know, more than 15 years of practicing medicine and realizing, you know what, weight loss doesn't actually work because I've had this conversation with a lot of my patients and mm-hmm. can't remember that many coming back and being like, look, I did it. And then five right. years later, <laughs> I still did it. Like it just didn't happen. So I knew, and I knew for myself, I also knew that I had been trying to lose weight for all of my adult life. And I had been dieting since I was a child because that's what my mother did. And, you know, my whole family sort of have been dieted, cereal dieters. Um, so I think I knew my lived experience, my personal lived experience and the experience of all the patients that I've had was the same. So I kind of knew it, but that didn't, it's a weird thing when you know something doesn't work, but you just keep prescribing it anyway. And like you say, it's how we were trained and it's also internalized fat phobia. And it's, I mean, there's lots of reasons. So I think when I started reading, it was like such a light bulb moment for me that once I'd read one, it was enough to just read it for my eyes to be completely opened and to do a literally like 180 degree pivot, like from one to the other. Uh, it was easy because it made sense. It was like the, the missing piece of the puzzle and then just going, oh, that's why that happens. Oh, okay. Because I know this person is not lazy. And I and I love, you know, I have, I, I love my patients. I feel very attached to my patients and I've always found the kind of, relationship with patients, the most important part of my practice. So I knew these people and I knew that I knew that they weren't lying to me. I knew that they were doing everything they said they were doing and yet it wasn't working. And so when the science came up, up I was like, oh, that's where it's not working. Oh, okay. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was quite, um, yeah, a bit of a revelation really. And yeah. yeah, it's like listening to your clients and your patients and trusting their lived experience is like the primary narrator of the story. Yes, absolutely. And it's so important. And I, what I've realized as I began to do that, as I realized, not that many doctors do it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> apparently I'm quite when you're a GP, you know, you don't really work with other people as you get further along in medicine as well if you're in a hospital you tend to be in a group mm-hmm. but if you're if you're like a, a sole practitioner or even if you're in a clinic but you know everyone else is doing their own practice yeah you discuss patients at lunchtime and stuff of course but actually you're on your own in that room for the majority of the time so it wasn't until i started listening to other people's experience of, of not being believed and not being listened to that i was like oh gosh yeah doctors are are really quite awful and i i had heard them talking so i was very aware i you know there were so many people that i just thought i wouldn't want them looking after me mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing how they behave away from patients but what i realized is they're actually just as appalling in front of their patients as they are oh my gosh <laughs> i was just like you know it's it's amazing how people just how doctors really don't believe like mm-hmm. you know and why why on earth would patients be lying to us? In fact, the only time that people, patients start lying to us is if they feel like they can't be honest with us, right? right. They'll lie mm-hmm. if they feel like, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't lie. But if you're like, you know, genuinely care and believe your patients, they will tell you everything. Like mm-hmm. you can ask the most personal intrusive questions and if you have a good relationship with them, they will answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not being believed, I think, is a real problem. And I see it, I'm sure you see it a lot with PCOS. Oh, yes. Huge problem. And we also see it, of course, when it comes to weight-centric medicine, because everybody is um, is sort of saying, oh, you know, lose some weight or do this, do that. And then, and then a, a patient will say, well, I do this or I do exercise. Thank you very much for assuming I don't. And the mm-hmm. doctor will automatically go, that patient's lying. Why? <laughs> Yeah. You know, I actually see this in the dietetics profession too. Like, and there are, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there are, you know, dietitian Facebook groups for business owners and for different specialties. And like, usually somebody who is not as informed in weight inclusive care might post, I can't figure out this, what's going on with this client and they're trying to lose X amount of weight. And we've done this, this, and this, and I don't understand in the first comments are always like, are they being truthful? Are you sure they're tracking correctly? Like, it's questioning 
the client instead of taking a step back and being like, wait a second, maybe this whole process is not as effective as we think it is. Yes. But then to add to that, it's funny you mentioned dietitians, but I have, my daughter has a dietitian for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, she's lovely, but she was off, I think, for Christmas or whatever. And uh, so I had a call from one of her clients, uh, her colleagues who I'd never met before. And he was a guy who didn't know me and was asking all sorts of questions about my daughter's diet. Now, I mean, this has nothing to do with weight. It's not mm-hmm. a weight, it's not weight related. They're, they're, I mean, they're, their biggest issue would be if she wasn't gaining weight. So it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. But when they were, he was asking me to recount everything that my daughter ate, I found myself lying a little bit, bending the truth a little bit, being too afraid to be honest that you know, she probably eats, um, you know, she, you know, it's, it's, you know, that she eats that and I let her eat that and that because I am the, I am very much of the belief that my children should be allowed to eat whatever they want and to mm-hmm. choose when and how they eat it. She has even control, like she takes packed lunch, you know, she takes her own lunch to school. She is in control of what goes in it. Uh, and she has some sensory processing issues. And so there are, you know, strict rules about what can and cannot go. And I'm very cool about that. But mm-hmm. knowing the judgment that I was going to receive, or even not knowing, because I'd never met him before, but just anticipating that judgment, I found myself bending the truth and lying a little bit. And now I don't think I necessarily caused my daughter any harm, but that could potentially be really harmful, right? Mm -hmm. And it would be better just to be completely and utterly honest and truthful. But I don't trust you to handle that correctly. And I'm too vulnerable, unfortunately, still Mm -hmm. to feel safe around you. And I think that's a big problem that we as clinicians are not safe. We are Mm -hmm. not safe people. Um, And so I'm not surprised that people aren't always truthful. So there's that kind of like it's 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 one is causing other things a causal relationship i don't believe you and make you feel like i don't believe you and then you stop feeling like you can be honest with me and so then you're not honest with me and then i have reason not to believe you and it's just it's a problem of my own making if only i just trusted you and respected you and you know and made you feel like i believed you i i bet you would be completely honest if if the dietitian had been like i don't really care if you know if your daughter's eating you know, chips every day, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Then I would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, well, fine. She does, she doesn't. <laughs> you know, like in, in inviting that kind of like, I'm not going to judge you um, makes a big difference, but we just don't do that. And it's just, it's so problematic. I think I've got us off onto a complete tangent. I'm no, really no, I actually love that you brought that up. Number one, because it kind of speaks to such a bigger problem because you feel this way and you are a physician. And then also, I think it, really speaks to the importance of creating an environment where there is trust. And when we talk about the harms of weight central healthcare, I think that one of the biggest harms is automatically creating an environment where a patient or a client feels like they can't be vulnerable, they can't be honest, like maybe even their best interests aren't at play. And I think you just gave a perfect example of that just in a different context. Yeah. I think actually a lot of times people say, you know, why wait, why wait inclusive medicine? And oftentimes I'll start with the science. Oh, well, weight loss isn't sustainable. And, um, you know, here are all the different harms for weight loss and all of this stuff. But actually, as we're talking, I'm thinking the real issue and it's the bit that I talk about at the end, unfortunately, and I probably should talk about in the beginning is that the most important job I have is to build what we call rapport with our patients. A patient has to be able to trust me implicitly, A, because I will be asking that patient to do things that no other human being really has the right to do. Like I might be asking that person to completely undress in front of me, to tell me secrets that they wouldn't tell anyone else, um, to allow me to in- examine um, you know, very intimate places, all of these things require trust. And also, as you pointed out, I need all the information. And if I'm not getting all the correct information, I could miss something very important. So building trust is essential, but weight stigma makes it impossible for that to exist. There is no trust. There is no communication. There is no, um, you know, there's, there's just no relationship there at all. And that's so dangerous. It's the mm-hmm. most dangerous thing we're doing. It's how we're going to end up missing things. Um, and of course, most importantly, 
people don't go see their doctor. Like they don't want to see their doctor. I don't blame them. I don't want to see my doctor. I'm constantly forcing myself to go where I need to go because I don't want another weight loss lecture. I don't want to feel judged. I don't want to be shamed or humiliated or embarrassed anymore. So I avoid it. I avoid it because I don't want them to have to go through the, the, the struggle to have that difficult conversation. And so that, of course, is another really dangerous thing. It's no wonder that a lot of fat people are, you know, have diagnoses that are being delayed. Even when it comes to things like COVID and um, viral infections and pneumonia and th- things that you just think like that you're going to go see a doctor about, people will stay at home. Even though it's got nothing to do with their weight, they will stay at home because they fear the doctor and fear is a powerful motivator, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, weight stigma is so important and perhaps I realize now that I should be focusing on that more than, you know, the fact that the weight is not sustainable, which we all know, but um, maybe that's not as important. Right. Yeah. I think having these conversations gets so complicated because so many healthcare providers and practitioners really don't have a lot of exposure to these conversations. And so Mm. You know, if you take somebody that's really deep in a weight-centric practice and you just bring up the idea that maybe we shouldn't be focusing on weight, it's almost like opening Pandora's box of like, where do I even start with this conversation? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I think you brought up a lot of really great things that I think the listeners will really relate to. Um, Okay. So... Before we jump into talking about semaglitude, I am curious because I don't think that I've actually asked a guest on this podcast yet this question, but what are your thoughts about pathologizing weight and taking the term, the O word, um, and saying that that is a disease because that actually plays a lot into the conversation that we're going to have. So people who say like weight in and of itself is a disease, like obesity is something that we need to treat. What are your thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts on that. The first and obvious one is it's not a disease because however you want to define a disease, like there is no diagnostic criteria for 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 obesity, apart from the BMI, which we know is flawed. Uh, I'm not getting into why it is. It is, if you don't believe me, that's, I mean, you've got a lot to learn. Um, So there is no real diagnostic criteria and there are no symptoms. Uh, There are no uh, presenting signs. I mean, all it is is a fancy way of saying this person is fat. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they talk about obesity-related conditions. And all of these things, all of these conditions that they talk about, all it means is there is a higher proportion of fat people with this condition or disproportionately high number of fat people with this condition. That's all it means. So like, yeah, they're related in the sense that like, there's some kind of link. But for me, pathologizing fatness has caused fat pathology, as as far as I'm concerned. Before Mm -hmm. we pathologize fatness, nobody was getting sick as a result of being fat. In fact, before we pathologize fatness, being fat protected you from getting sick, without a doubt. You lived longer if you were fat because you had more energy stores and thin people were the ones that would die because at the time people were dying of infection, most importantly, and all sorts of other things. So being fat generally meant you were better nourished and you survived longer. Then we start pathologizing fatness. And the more we pathologize fatness, the more stigma we created, the more we started oppressing fat people. So we went from kind of like, you know, we don't care to you're bad to you're bad and therefore we will punish you, which is essentially what is happening and what has been happening for quite some time. And as a result of that, you know, things like our uh, chronic stress, the imbalance in our hormones, the, the chronic yo-yo, you know, um, dieting or weight cycling, as we like to call it, all of these things have actually impacted our health. And so now, you know, when I think about my own personal journey, when I was a kid, I wasn't, I wasn't a fat kid. I wasn't a not fat kid. I was just a kid. I, I mean, just regular looking. And more importantly, we, thankfully, we weren't weighing people that much at the time, um, not like we are now. So, um, but my mom got in her head that I was fat. So she started to pathologize me from then. There's something wrong with your body and you have to fix it for your health, not because you're ugly, for your health. And so 
I spent the rest of my life trying to fix my body. And the more I tried to fix it, the more I broke it. And, mm. you know, there's things like I, I had gestational diabetes. I had my first pregnancy when I was 25. I, I had gestational diabetes then and it was missed. And, you know, what I should have done is stop dieting at the age of 25 because mm -hmm. I know that all this, the weight cycling I've done since the age of 25 has damaged my pancreas. And so when I got my type 2 diabetes diagnosis post-COVID, I wasn't particularly surprised. I mean, I was dreading it, but I wasn't particularly surprised. But I sometimes think, well, what if I hadn't pathologized my weight? What if I had just left my body alone to do its thing? Would I look this way? Would I have type 2 diabetes? Would I have, you know, would I be still taking antidepressants and all of these things? You know, all of my health problems, I think I can link back to the fact that my fatness has been pathologized. So I genuinely believe that it's not just that we shouldn't be doing it, but by doing it, we are causing harm. And I think in, in terms of the GLP-1, so that we'll talk about in a minute, we are causing harm deliberately for profit. And that makes it even worse. I mean, it's bad enough as it is, but doing what we're doing now with weight loss injections is deliberately for profit. And when it causes all this harm that it's going to cause, um, it will be just so a drug company could get rich. And that is just not okay. Mm, yeah, you bring up... Well, okay, two thing, two important things. One is that, we, and I can put this in the show notes, I mean, we have research that shows that independent of weight, that weight stigma mm -hmm. makes insulin resistance worse, makes inflammation worse, makes cardiovascular health worse, not to mention mental health, stress, anxiety. Um, so there's that. And then also, yeah, the business of weight loss. Even when we talk about how weight formally became a quote-unquote disease, the pharmaceutical industry was heavily involved in that. And right. once that became a thing, immediately people started qualifying for these drugs. And the if we, we won't do it on this episode, but to go into the whole history of how influential pharmaceutical companies are to this conversation, it's so unethical. Mm. I mean, it's unethical, but it's not unbelievable. And I think, you know, if you look at what happened with pain and pain management um, 20 years ago, right? Like when you look at how one drug company, just one, um, is not only responsible for an opioid epidemic that continues to ravage the US. And by the way, only the US and uh, I mean other countries as well, but not the UK, purely because when Purdue was pushing OxyContin, they got a license in the US and they didn't in the UK. And we have had completely different, like a completely different trajectory since then, just because of this drug. But when you look at what Purdue did, and hopefully people have listened to the podcast or watched the programs or read, read the books, whatever. It is not like we've seen this happen. It has happened already. People took chronic pain, a very serious issue. I'm not going to necessarily call it a condition. It's a symptom, right? Pain mm -hmm. is a symptom. They took it, they pathologized it, and then they said, and this is how you treat it. And they caused untold amounts of harm. So never, ever doubt for one second that the pharmaceutical industry is capable of completely changing the field of, of healthcare and doing it for completely nefarious purposes. So like you said, I mean, if you go into it, if you actually look into it, the, the, the manufacturers of this particular drug we're going to talk about have like their fingerprints are everywhere. They are the most unethical company out there at the moment in my humble opinion, out of all the drug companies. <laughs> in our opinions. <laughs> in our opinion. Very much so. At this point in time, I'm like, if they were going to see me, they would have seen me by now. Like, surely, you know, I just think I'm too I'm too unimportant to them because I, I say awful things about them all the time. In my humble opinion, the worst of the worst. Of the Allegedly. Worst. Allegedly. <laughs> I didn't even mention, um, I mean, we could be, I mean, you could change the script now. We could talk about a different drug company if you want. Like, I didn't actually mention their names. Mm -hmm. You'll notice. 
Yes. <laughs> On a no, separate but... note, would you like to ask your next question? <laughs> and maybe if people are not familiar with the pain management conversation, maybe I can also link something in the show notes if people are interested in learning more about that. Okay, so let's jump into talking about GLP-1 agonists. So we're talking about medications like Ozempic and Wagovi, and these are becoming very popular. Celebrities are taking them. They, I notice with my clients now, almost everyone is being offered these medications. And it kind of reminds me of how bariatric surgery used to be, where, you know, my clients would go to the doctor and, you know, maybe they would have one visit. It was like step one and then step two, like you're not losing weight, like you should get surgery. I feel like now these GLP-1s have taken the place of that. So everybody has questions about these. They're confused about whether they should be taking them. So I just want to open up a conversation about that. So to start off, can you tell us exactly how these medications work in the body? Yeah. So we all, um, all of us secrete hormones in our gut called incretins. And the job of the incretin is um, basically to, um, to get us to release insulin. All right, let's leave it at that. And the GLP-1 analogs basically mimic this naturally occurring hormone. So it increases the amount of insulin we produce and uh, it decreases the amount uh, the insulin sensitivity in our sorry it's not decrease it increases sensitivity it decreases the in- insulin resistance mm-hmm. uh, in our cells and it does other things as well it also happens to at the same time suppress our appetite uh, it causes um, food to stay in our stomachs longer so it delays gastric emptying but the the, the drugs were created to treat diabetes mm-hmm. and as you can imagine if you're a type 2 diabetic uh, you have insulin resistance um, maybe your body's not that making that much insulin. And so these drugs come along and you can see why they'd be very useful. They increase your insulin and they and, and they you know, decrease your insulin resistance. Wonderful. So the drug Ozempic has existed now. I think it's going to be at least 10 years, I would think, um, roughly. And to treat diabetes, it's one milligram subcutaneously. So it's an injection once a week. And Ozempic has existed for that purpose for a long long time. But as I said, it just so happens to suppress your appetite as well. And that's because this hormone is part of what we call homeostasis. So it's basically our body balances itself out, right? Like it's so clever the way our body works. So when one hormone goes up, another one goes down and so on and so forth to balance our blood sugars out. So one of the things is like when you start eating, you start releasing this hormone and then it says to your brain, like we're eating now so you can stop. So that decreases your appetite. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all very clever the way the body works and they're just mimicking it. So in a way it's good. But the problem is, well, problem, that they found that it decreased appetite and they thought, oh, we can make a lot of money out of this because people are on this drug and they're losing weight. Um, and I always say to people, you know, Viagra once upon a time was a blood pressure medication. It's just mm-hmm. that when they were, in, you know, looking at it, they were like, this isn't great at treating blood pressure, but, you know, it really has an interesting side effect. And that's how we came, you know, and that's how this entire field of drugs and they made a lot of money out of that in the same way. The manufacturers of the GLP-1 analogs were like, this is great for diabetes, but look, it makes people lose weight. So they came up with this, the same drugs, magnetide, but a much higher dose, 2.4 milligrams once a week now instead of one milligram. And they said, if we give this to people, it's going to make them lose weight. And they did some trials and the, tr- the first study came out in 2021 and the FDA approved it soon after that. So um, Wegovy is approved for weight loss and Azempic is still the drug that we use to treat diabetes. And if you're a type 2 diabetic and you're being treated with Azempic, this conversation is, is not relevant to you. It's being used to treat your condition, which is what it was designed for. And it is a very effective drug, one of many, but it's a very effective one. The problem is also there's a manufacturing problem. People can't get Wigovi because they're just not making enough of it because it's in such high demand. So a lot of people are now taking Ozempic for weight loss to the point that in kind of popular culture, we talk about Ozempic rather than Wegovy when we talk about weight loss drugs, which is ironic because Ozempic is not a particularly good weight loss drug. Mm-hmm. There is a study which is called the STEP2 
two trial, which actually looked at that and found, yeah, it's not actually that good. So um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be taking it, but a lot of people are, of course, and you know, as you know. Right. Yeah. So some important takeaways there, Ozempic and Wagovi, it's the same drug, just at different doses. And what I see with my clients where you mentioned type 2 diabetes, usually where I see this medication recommended is maybe somebody is taking metformin and they've kind of reached their max dose and then their blood sugar continues to increase. So that medication is added on or when somebody really cannot tolerate metformin for whatever reason and their blood sugar is higher, maybe one of these medications will be prescribed. Right. And and it is it's one that diabetes uh, doctors will reach for in 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 fatter patients because in their mind not only does this treat diabetes but it's gonna make you thinner too Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the best medication for you and so if you have type 2 diabetes and you are that person that either can't tolerate metformin or is on metformin and needs a second drug which is by the way very very common um you have a selection you don't have to automatically be placed, placed on Ozempic. There are other equally as effective, possibly even more effective drugs out there. So have that conversation with your doctor. Why are you placing me on this one in particular? Is there a reason? Are there other options? What are the other options? What are the pros? What are the cons? And then make the decision you, by yourself because there are some other really good drugs out there that are not injectables, that don't have the same side effects, perhaps slightly more tolerable for some people, depending on who you are. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts on that. Hopping into the next question. So we talked about how the medications worked in the body and the differences. So you touched on who the medications are designed for and what are the benefits. Did you want to add anything to that? Like we mentioned, type 2 diabetes. I don't know that there's anyone. It's not licensed to treat anything else. So um, it's type 2 diabetes. Mic drop. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some of the side effects of these GLP-1s because, and I noticed this in a lot of weight-centric spaces, the side effects are really downplayed and that can leave patients with a lot of shame if they do experience side effects. So can you just share some of the common side effects that you see? Yeah, look, I mean, you're not going to go to the toilet the same again, probably. Chances are. It's either going to constipate you or it can go the other way. Like gastrointestinal side effects, feeling nauseous all the time. Um, it's common, very common. I think it was 60-something percent or something. It was really high. Um, and they downplay it in the studies. You're like, oh, it's just minor. It's not minor. If you're feeling nauseous every day of your life, that is not minor at all. Mm-hmm. And headaches, um, uh, sort of lightheadedness. And it, it also, you know, really does reduce your appetite. And I know everyone sees that as a positive thing. I'm not convinced that it is. Like, actually, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of going off food can be quite upsetting for some people. Um, what else does it do? Um, the delayed gastric emptying, and unfortunately, sometimes that leads to a condition called dumping syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's hideous. People don't know about this. Extreme weight loss results in t- um, gallstones in 10% of people. Um, statistically speaking. So you're one in 10 chance of developing gallstones whilst on this medication. And then acute pancreatitis is one of the most serious uh, side effects that we're aware of. And that's that's life-threatening. So that's mm-hmm. inflammation of the pancreas. Uh, this drug has a black, uh, is it a black box or a black triangle? I can't remember what it's called in, in um, but it, it has a warning that it is linked to thyroid medullary cancer. Uh, it is uh, cancer of the thyroid gland. It's quite a rare form of cancer. So, you know, I don't want you to worry that you're going to get it. If you're on it, don't panic. Right. Mm-hmm. Very, very rare. But it exists. And most importantly, we do not have any evidence for the long-term use of these drugs on people with a non-diabetic pancreas, right? So we have mm-hmm. studies not that long, but at least some studies. And we've been using this drug, as I said, for at least a decade in diabetics. But now we're using this drug in people who are not diabetic, who have a completely different pancreas. We do not know the impact that this is going to have on the pancreas itself. And there are many of us who are concerned that if this drug causes your pancreas to release lots of extra insulin. That's its job, right? I said it increases mm-hmm. insulin and it decreases and it, and it reduces insulin resistance. But if it's constantly producing 
excesses, excessive levels of insulin, logic dictates, and it's just logic now, it's just the hypothesis, it's conjecture, we don't have any evidence, but doesn't it make sense that after a while, that's going to like impact your pancreas? You know, every organ in our body is not going to live forever and work in peak form forever. So if you're causing unnecessary strain or stress on a healthy or non-diabetic pancreas, are you not theoretically putting that person's pancreas at risk? And this is the biggest question I have. Is it possible that you might be increasing a person's chance of developing type 2 diabetes. Because remember I said, not all insulin resistant people develop type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that those of us who are insulin resistant are actually going to end up having diabetes at an earlier age? And if that were to happen, there would be no way to prove it. And that is the perfect, perfect crime, if you ask me. Because mm -hmm. if that were to happen, the, the obvious answer would be like, yeah, but they were fat, so they were going to get diabetes anyway. And there'd be no way to prove otherwise. So yeah. this has me massively concerned. And I want to say again and again, there's no evidence to support this because there's no evidence to support this because this drug has only been around since the middle of 2021. That's why there isn't evidence, but also there isn't evidence. So it's not an accusation that I can make, um, but it's it's something to think about, just mm -hmm. to know, to be aware of. Yeah. So those are the same side effects. Would you consider where you talk about a healthy pancreas with PCOS? And, you know, we know a large majority of people with PCOS have insulin resistance of some degree that's, you know, driving a lot of symptoms. How would you, what would you consider the pancreas of the average person with PCOS to be? Yeah. And I don't, that's why I said healthy. And I was like, no, let me take that back because I, I, I don't like saying healthy or healthy or not healthy. I'm talking about a diabetic or a non-diabetic mm -hmm. pancreas. Because gotcha. In an insulin resistant person, the insulin resistance isn't in the pancreas. Mm -hmm. The insulin resistance is happening in the other cells in the body. It's happening in the muscle, skeletal muscle cells, in the liver cells, in the fat cells, in all the other cells, but not the actual pancreas. Gotcha. In type 2 diabetics, what we tend to see, and with, there's no way of measuring this, but after a while, the pancreas becomes more and more exhausted. And I think I think that's the term we normally use now is pancreatic mm -hmm. exhaustion. So not only have we got insulin resistance in the cells, but after a while, we begin to see that effect in the pancreas itself. So some of the cells in the pancreas stop producing insulin or it's not producing enough insulin or, you know, so it, when I talk about the diabetic pancreas, I'm talking about the pancreas that has got to a stage where now we're not managing your blood sugar levels properly. Gotcha. Whereas mm -hmm. if you've got PCOS, you may have some insulin resistance in your cells, but you may well have a completely healthy pancreas and have normal insulin levels, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. how would you know? There's mm -hmm. no way of really knowing. So you're, I suppose you're prone to, but I would, I would, I don't want to say healthy. What a horrible word, healthy. Like I, yeah. can, <laughs> like I can diagnose, oh, you've got healthy pancreas, you not so much. Um, but you know, that's what I was talking about. Like it's different for diabetics because once you hit the stage of diabetes, like you're like, well, the benefits of this medication far outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. But when it's just for weight loss, the question is, do the benefits outweigh the risk? And here are a couple of things you need to know about this medication. Number one is that you will start to regain weight on this medication. Everybody in the trial that went on this medication beyond one year began to gain weight. Mm -hmm. So after about a year, weight gains, regain starts. And it's quite quick. I think they, lost, they regained about 15% of the, the, the weight that they'd lost within about eight months or less mm -hmm. than eight months. So you know, potentially you can regain all the weight whilst being on it. And the second thing you need to know is the moment you stop it, you will regain all the weight, probably plus some. And that's what, again, the studies have shown the rebound weight gain. So there was one study where they took people, put them on um, uh, smagnetide, and then about 20 weeks in, half of them started getting the, um, like the placebo, the water injection, essentially. And what happened was the people who had the um, weight loss injection, smagnetide, continued losing weight. And the people who went on to the placebo started gaining weight immediately and really almost caught back up again within less than a year. So it, it is very clear that you will regain the weight the moment you stop this drug. And, and so I, I think, you know, when we talk about the benefits of this drug, what are the benefits of this drug? The only benefit, there's no health, known health benefits. None of the studies show any health benefits whatsoever. When I talk about health, I'm talking about blood pressure, cholesterol, mm -hmm. blood sugar, any of those things. No, 
they weren't studied and therefore we can't we can't speculate the only benefit known at this precise moment in time for these drugs is weight loss but it's short-term weight loss only because it's not sustainable in the long term so you've got all the risks side effects possible risk to the pancreas possible risk of cancer etc cetera, etc cetera. the only benefit is like a year or so of weight loss and then you're going to start regaining it so does the benefit outweigh the risk whereas if you're a type 2 diabetic the benefit is we're treating your diabetes that's completely different now we're in a completely different conversation so that's what i want you to know and whenever you're having anyone trying to sell you a drug and this is the advice i would give you if a doctor is trying to say i think you should be on this drug i wouldn't argue with them i'd say can you tell me what the benefits of this medication are and if they say you'll lose weight that's true um you can say well um I've heard that it only lasts for a year and then it starts to you start to regain and they may well lie to you because they're probably less informed than most people um but that's the truth and I can show you the studies for that and you can link them in the show notes mm-hmm. if you're interested in the studies so the benefit the only benefit that they can give you is that it's going to uh, make you lose weight they can't tell you it's going to improve your PCOS nonsense there's no evidence of that they can't mm-hmm. tell you any of these other things um so then you say okay and what are the risks and they should be telling you all of the risks and then you can say thank you very much for explaining the benefits of the risks i as far as i'm concerned the risks outweigh the benefits and therefore i'm not taking this medication document that in my notes and that's the end of it that's informed consent mm-hmm. they cannot they cannot if you say no the risks outweigh the benefits they're done they can't convince you otherwise because then they're trying to coerce you and you can't coerce a person into doing something legally so that's what i would recommend i know you didn't ask but i answered anyway <laughs> yeah no i thought i think that that was great advice and you bring up such an important topic of informed consent and that is where for any listener you as a patient are given the risks and the benefits and you have all of the information to make a decision that works for you right. and what i see with not just GLP ones, but with any sort of weight loss intervention is that that is not typically the conversation that's had. Typically, you know, just the, the prospect of losing weight is presented in such an optimistic way that any risks are downplayed to the point where you may not even really understand the weight of the risk. Play on didn't mean to say the way. The thing about informed consent is there's risks and benefits, but there's two more things. They have to give you the other options, and there Mm. must always be more than one option. Okay, a doctor can never give you one option. They must give you more than one. Now, sometimes the only other treatment is no treatment. Like if it's a life-saving operation, we might be like, we need to go in there and like you know stop that artery from hemorrhaging, and if we don't, you're going to bleed out. And you'll mm-hmm. die inevitably. And the only other option is that we don't do anything. So okay, the the consent is really obvious here. Most mm-hmm. people be like, "Yeah, please save my life." But when it comes to a medication, there must be more than one option. And so, even like for for a di- type two diabetic, if they're saying we want to prescribe a Zempic, that's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong, but ask what are the benefits? What are the risks? And what are the other options? And then if they offer you other options, kind of go, well, what are the benefits and risks of those so that you mm-hmm. can make a decision? Yeah. And they always have to give you the option of no treatment. That's the fourth thing. So we could do nothing. And this is very relevant with weight, for, weight loss conversations because they will often happen unsolicited, right? They will. It's not because you went in there and said, tell me how to lose weight. It's because you went in there with a sore throat or to help ask about your PCOS and they brought up weight loss. So in that case, if they're trying to sell you on a weight loss drug, benefits, risks, other options, and the option of, well, we could do nothing about your weight. That's another option. And if they're not giving that to you, then they are not allowing you to they're not they're not giving you informed consent which means they're not respecting your autonomy which means they are in breach of their duty of care towards you this is a doctor's duty of care they have to do it and by failing to do it so i think if you know that sometimes you have to ask the questions but it becomes very clear to them that you're way more informed than they than they realized and that they can't just be like yeah you need to lose some weight take this drug mm-hmm. i'm so glad that you brought that up because So many of my clients have these conversations over and over and over again, like 
please don't focus on my weight or can we focus on other things? Or I don't want this drug or this surgery. Can we not bring it up anymore? And like one of the top questions that I see in PCOS communities is, can somebody help me find a new doctor? Mm-hmm. And that's so sad. It's because of, of things like this. And another thing I want to bring up about the step, tr- do you call them the step studies or the step trials? The, I, so they, yeah. there's like five different steps. And with Wagovi in the fifth one, what they found is that people, when they stopped taking the medication, regained weight no matter what their diet or exercise was like. 100%. And I think that's really important to bring up because when I see this talked about online, some people are talking about taking these medications as a jump start of like, mm-hmm. well, I'm just going to take this to help me get into better habits and then I'm going to go off. And what we see yeah. in research is that that does not happen. So I think... But it, beyond that, all of the step trials... The people on the step trials were on a 500 calorie deficit diet, which means they were already dieting. They were doing 150 minutes of exercise a week and they were seeing a weight loss counselor once a month. Now, that's pretty heavily involved, if you Mm -hmm. ask me. Everyone was doing that already. And you remember I told you about the trial where they stopped it after 20 weeks and some Mm -hmm. people went on the water, but they were still on a diet. They were still Mm. dieting for the entire year because that was part of being on the trial. So it's not going to work. You will. It is guaranteed. And also you will regain weight at a rate which has never actually been seen before. So it's 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 faster it's a high, you know faster than we've ever seen more rapid than we've ever seen with any other weight loss drugs. So if we look at all the other weight loss drugs that have come before it, and we look at weight regain, which is inevitable with all these drugs, the speed, the rate at which it happens is really quite phenomenal. That's super interesting. I thought, please correct me if I'm wrong. I thought in the step studies that after five years people who took Wagovi, they lost weight and then they regained some, but on average there was a 15% like maintenance weight loss. Is was that not the case? Well they've not done one for five years, so definitely not. Oh uh, okay. There is no like this is for weight loss. Remember what I said. So for a Z has existed a long time. Wagovi has only existed since 20 they only started doing trials in 2020. Uh, 2019, 2020, and the studies have come out since 2021. The longest they've studied it is two years. And so in that study, what they found is people lost the most amount of weight in the first 20 weeks, Mm -hmm. which interestingly is when you're on the lower doses because you have to escalate the dose. So you start Mm -hmm. off on a very low dose, and that's when you actually lose the most amount of weight. Once you hit the target dose, which is 2.4 milligrams, actually the weight loss starts to slow down. And it slows down. Once you hit six months, it's really plateaued. And once you hit between 10 months and a year, depending on the study that you look at, that's when you've hit what we call the nadir, which is the the peak weight loss. Mm -hmm. And then you start to go up. So when they studied it for a year, like people start to gain back a bit of weight and then they stopped it. But when they mm-hmm. studied it for two years, um, it wasn't quite two years. It was two years minus 20 weeks. But what they found was that the 15% of the weight that had been lost had been regained within that short period of time. If you were to just follow the trajectory of the graph, just follow it, uh, which is not good science, but if you did, you'd find that actually weight returns to normal within the five years. But we don't have any evidence that you can maintain any level of weight loss from Wegovy because the study just hasn't been done yet. Gotcha. Um, we'll see. We'll see if they ever measure it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because what a lot of people don't realize is with some research where they're trying to prove a point, if that point isn't proven, they just won't publish the study. They won't be like, hey, this doesn't work, just so you know. Um, Well, part of so first of all, thank you for correcting me. And also the reason I was bringing that up is because when we're talking about conversations that people can have with their healthcare providers, an important question to ask is, long-term, if I do this consistently, what is the average percentage of weight loss? Because what people will find is that for some things, 
first of all, we don't have like long term research for most things. But even in the short term, like let's say if you did lose 10 or 15 percent of your body weight for a lot of people, you know, if you are pathologizing weight, which we're not saying that's right. But if your doctor is, your weight would still be above a certain BMI. Like it's not curing this problem that is presented to you. I always say it like this, look, doctors will say 10%, lose 10%, that'll make all the difference. And I'm like, cool. If you're 330 pounds and you lose 10% of your body weight, you've lost 33 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. So that takes you down to 297 pounds and then you regain it according to, you know, in the vast majority of cases. If you're 297 pounds, you're still going to be told to lose 10% of your body weight. Make that right. make sense. If it was just about how much you weigh, and we'll assume these two people are exactly the same height so that, you know, because I don't want to, and we'll assume they're the same uh, sex. So we could assume that the two identical people. My point is that this myth that 10% of your body weight is somehow going to change things for the vast majority of people, it's not going to significantly change what you look like on the outside or what happens to the inside of your body. Um, there will be some like celebrities losing 10% of their body weight. Well, they're very thin to start with. So when they lose 10% of their body weight, we will notice. Mm-hmm. But if you're 300 pounds, like losing 10% of your body, people are not going to be like, oh my gosh, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And the idea that fat people can become thin people, that has been disproven a long time ago. The statistical mm-hmm. possibility of that, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's stupid. It's some stupid number, like 0.000 something percent. People don't go from being fat to thin. The maximum weight that you'll lose is probably around, uh, with weight loss injections, it's you know probably 15%. Some people with weight loss surgery can even lose more than that. I've read some people have lost up to 20%. I've seen statistics up to 30%. But, and so that's significant. But again, it's short term. Like You will rebound. You will start to regain. A lot of people who have had weight loss surgery have regained all the weight back. A lot mm-hmm. of people who are on drugs stop taking them have regained all the weight back. Um, what, what I want to know is, has the doctor told you what that's doing to your body? Has anyone sat down with you and gone, you know, when you lose 10% of your body weight, your body will panic. That is terrifying for your body. And these are all the things that will happen. Has your doctor sat down and told you about what happens to your ADH levels, which ha- what happens to your gonadotrophin releasing hormone levels, which is very important because it's relevant to your estrogen and testosterone levels? Do they sit down and talk to you about cortisol levels, insulin resistance, the cholesterol pathway? Do they talk to you about your metabolic rate and how it changes and it doesn't go back? Do they talk to you about how it changes the lining of your guts, um, how it changes the way that you um, process fat? Do they talk to you about how the impact it has on your genetics? Mm. Do they sit down and have that conversation with you? Because benefits and risks, right? You'll lose 10% of your body weight temporarily. But this is what will happen as a result of losing 10% of your body weight temporarily. No one sits down and tells people about like the malnutrition or the the changes in hormones or like the cortisol, just the cortisol levels alone. No one sits down and talks about it. Losing large amounts of weight um, and going on a diet increases your cortisol level, increases your cortisol level, and therefore increases your insulin resistance level. Mm -hmm. So... Is it helping? I don't think so. There's mm-hmm. really no evidence out there that it's going to benefit you, but we do know about the risks and no one talks about it, which is wrong because it's not informed consent. So don't be tempted. You know, I, I, short-term weight loss is tempting. I get it. I've been there many, many, many times, but it's not going to, it's, it's, it's not probably, it's probably not going to last, but more importantly, Do you understand what you're doing to your body as a result of that? Have you Mm. looked at what actually happens to the human body? Um, I bet you doctors haven't. I bet you doctors don't care. They would would prefer thinness at any cost. Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of people listening will really relate to that. And I think in closing out this conversation, I just want to hold space for anybody out there who does have the desire to lose weight because we live in a culture and a society that idealizes thinness and there's weight discrimination and this is a this is a complex conversation and I think if there's one 
takeaway that you have, it is the topic of informed consent and understanding all of the things that to consider and, you know, that you do have autonomy for your own choices and your own body. And I appreciate Asher bringing up all of the things to consider with these um, injectable medications. I think that everybody has some really great takeaways, um, new things that might not have been brought up to them. Is there, do you have any other closing thoughts for the episode? Yeah, I want to just carry on what you said. You know, when I talk about it, I, you know, I'm even writing a book about it right now. It's almost finished about why, and it's it's reasons why doctors shouldn't prescribe weight loss. Mm-hmm. It is not called reasons why people shouldn't pursue weight loss. Mm-hmm. That's such a big distinction. It's a huge distinction because when I talk about benefits versus risks, I also need to talk about individual medicine. Every individual is different. And I can tell you what the medical benefits are and the medical Mm -hmm. risks, but you know the benefits to you as an individual. And you might say, look, for me, pursuing weight loss at this stage, maybe you're being blackmailed into it. Maybe you're being told you can't have IVF unless you lose weight. If I wanted to have a baby and that was my only option, I would be in a very, very different position to to where I am right now. Like I can say to weight loss, fine. But if, if if having children depended on it, then perhaps you will argue the benefits do outweigh the risk. Sure, I know I'm going to gain it all back. Sure, I know I'm going to put my body through that. So what? I'll be able to qualify for IVF, which means I can try to have a baby. And so I never, ever, ever want anyone to hear what I'm saying and think that I am anti-weight loss. I am anti-doctors prescribing weight loss. I am anti-doctors lying about weight loss, but I am not anti-weight loss. There are many, many, many reasons why people would choose to pursue weight loss. And I will never, ever judge people for that. And more importantly, you're right. You've got to hold space for that. Um, So that is all I would want to say. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I'm glad that you brought up the IVF aspect because with this being a PCOS podcast, that is, you know, an intervention that people seek for help with fertility. Um, so thank you so much for pointing that out. If you want any support or help with that, if you're trying to um, fight back against a decision that's being made against you and you want like medical legal support, do get in touch because I am now doing this more and more often, helping people to try and fight the system. It's really hard with IVF, mm-hmm. um, but it is possible. And, um, and if if nothing else, it is a breach of your human rights because people are literally coercing you into losing weight, which is illegal. So mm-hmm. if you want help, please do come and find me. And in fact, um, if anybody like wants a medical consultation, um, I don't, I, I'm not practicing as a doctor anymore, but I absolutely still am a diagnostician. I'm still an advocate. I'm still very much there to support people in their medical journey and their healthcare journey. So you can come find me at my website, www.fatdoctor.co.uk, and you can book a consultation through there. I don't do examinations because I do everything over online, and I don't order investigations, um, and I don't prescribe things because I work with a lot of people outside of the UK anyway, um, but I do all of the other stuff. I do the listening stuff and the and and they're helping people figure out what's wrong with their body stuff, which I think can be really helpful. Um, So please, yeah, please come find me if that's something you're struggling with. Don't struggle in silence and don't feel like it's your only option, but also don't be like, don't ever beat yourself up. If that's what you need to do to get to the place you need to be, then you do whatever you need to do. And I 100% support you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Asher. So you mentioned you're writing a book. People can contact you, you know, for a consultation. Do you have anything exciting coming up that you want to share? Yes, there's a couple of things. Uh, if you if you haven't visited my website, I have lots of free resources on there. And one of them is oh, a couple of them are all about how to kind of advocate for yourself in the doctor's office. So if that's something you're struggling with or you just want some advice, it's all free. It's all on my website. You go to my website, look at look under freebies right there at the top and you can like access those things. Um, and I have a course that I'm going to, it's currently closed for, for um, you know, I have to be careful about how many people are on the course, but I will be relaunching that soon. And it's called Take Your Power Back. It is something I am so massively, like it's the thing I love doing most in the world. It's helping people who feel completely disempowered in their healthcare journey to take that power back. 
Um, and I go from the beginning to the end. I, I do lots of practical tips, but we also do lots of work on um, medical trauma and processing trauma. We talk about communication. We talk about um, consent. We talk about um, ethics and all sorts of things. So, um, yes, take your power back if that's something you're interested in. You can't re- you can't register right now, but you can register your interest so that if you want a spot, you get up on the on my list um and yeah there will be a book uh i don't exactly know what it's going to be called but it's going to be called something like reasons why doctors shouldn't prescribe weight loss which sounds maybe a bit of a mouthful but it does what it says so it will be coming out i'm hoping and this is the plan you know you've heard of world obesity day uh, which is sponsored <laughs> by Novo nordisk um, oh my gosh that's so funny that it's sponsored by them <laughs> it's sponsored by Novo. so on i want to make that my release date just kind of like as like two big middle fingers up um so i'm hoping i can get it done in time and it will be released which is i think march march 4th or 5th or something like that so oh wow well (laughs) keep us updated and i'll be happy to share it um with the audience i think it's such an important topic that there's there's just so much research and evidence about why we shouldn't prescribe weight loss. And I do feel like once people are exposed to it, they completely change their tune. They just have to have that exposure. So that sounds like a great book. Thank you. Awesome. Well, tell everybody how they can find you if they want to connect with you online. Uh, so fatdoctor.co.uk. If you go to my website, you can find everything, right? And also the nice thing about my website is no one can cancel me there. Um, <laughs> sign up. Sign up to my email list because what I'm doing with my email list now is I do like a Q&A. Like, you know, when um, I don't know what you call it over there. So is it like Dear Abby when you like write? Do, do yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> and then like they ask a question and then like Abby answers. Well, I don't know mm-hmm. if she's Abby or she, I don't know what her name is, but whatever it is, I do the equivalent on my website, on my um, email. So every day you'll get an email that has like a question. You can ask anything, literally any question, I will try and answer it. Um, and so if you sign up to my email list, then you'll always get like, you'll find out what I'm doing. But more importantly, you'll get these kind of like lots of free information that I just, I really like for me, I want the information to get out there. Mm-hmm. And no one can cancel my email, <laughs> but I'm also on Instagram, which is very safe at the moment. No one's threatening to cancel me. Um, so that's the fat doctor. Um, and really I would find me on Instagram or don't find me at all because all my other social media accounts, a lot of other un- unseemly people have found me and it, it's quite nasty on there. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, come find me there. I've got a podcast out as well. Um, and it's not as nearly as organized as yours. I should be going now. <laughs> it's far more rambly. I'm just like, oh, I better record something quick. Press record. I'm not organized. At I all. have those. No, I have those moments too. Trust me. That's very relatable. Um, okay. So I will link all of that information in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on. This has been a great conversation. And everyone, if you want to follow Asher, um, check the show notes for all the information. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.